turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. I'd buy that for a dollar. Let's talk stocks, investing in more. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing in you. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. You can call the show at 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. We can talk about Walmart versus Amazon. There's something. There's a book that I read many, many years ago called The Death of Competition. I think it's a must-read if you want to sharpen your brain as far as it, when it comes to business concepts and business ideas. I'm not saying you got to do it. I'm saying that I think it's important if you want to play the game to try to get something other than the investment books, How to Beat Wall Street. You know, uh, 10 stocks in 10 days, $10 million. That's not what you really... I'm not saying that's not what you really want. Um, But it's kind of the direction I want you to go. Um, On Stock Talk, I'm going to talk about stocks and sectors and investing and do everything that I can. So there's something that I want to get to pretty quickly, though, is some of the products that you need. Like I said, I don't think you need day trader tips. I don't think you need books on how to become a billionaire after your first millions. I think that's the kind of stuff that ultimately gets a lot of people in very big trouble. What you think you need is a lot of data and a lot of good concepts in your head. Um, I like the Wall Street Journal as a good start to a generic, big, broad-based, paintbrush approach towards money. I like the business section of the New York Times. I think that works quite well. Then I want you to start thinking, okay, if I'm going to become a good investor, and I'm going to talk stocks, I'm going to talk sectors, but first I want to talk some megatrends. And over the next 15 to 20 years, these trends are going to be so dominant that there's going to be a lot of money to be made in them. Trends can be things like the United States needs better infrastructure. We've heard Donald Trump say we need a trillion dollars for infrastructure. Now, that's not going to happen in the short term, but in the long term, I think it's kind of the right idea. So over the next 15 to 20 years, and when you have infrastructure, you need things like Caterpillar. So you need things like John Deere. Um, you need some of the engineering firms out there. As far as portfolio plays goes, consultant work advisor for data action and stocks mentioned on the show. But over the next 15 to 20 years, continued giving from groups like the World Health Organization and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is going to lift millions of people out of poverty. Now, I'm actually kind of sad that the Clinton Foundation got shut down because I used to know someone who worked in, in charitable logistics tied towards <clears throat> tied towards disasters, so things like when Haiti would crop up or famine in Ethiopia. Uh, this group would go over there and help facilitate how Bill Gates' money and the Gates, found, uh, the Gates Foundation money and how the Clinton Foundation money got spent. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy and a lot of politics tied towards the Clinton Foundation and were they paying themselves as a sham company. I can tell you there was a lot of good being done from what I heard from someone who was in the trenches, so to speak. 
So anyhow, <clears throat> excuse me, anyhow and anyway, um, the Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization is giving a, they're going to lift millions of people out of poverty, and that's a big 15 to 20 year trend. I think it's to the extent that the majority of the world's population will no longer be impoverished over the next 20 years. This new wealth is going to produce millions more empowered individuals that will have the means to add to local and national economies. There's a charitable group called the Heifer Foundation, which instead of giving food to a group, they give a cow to a group so that group can now milk the cow. They give a goat to a group so that group can now make cheese from the goat. Now, of course, sometimes the poor goat's going to get slaughtered on day one, but it is what it is. There's a lot of good stuff going on out there. So because more empowered people are going to have greater access to lethal weapons and networks, which is a capability formerly the monopoly of states, um, but you're going to have the poor people becoming middle class, and you're going to have some middle class becoming kind of like dictators, a little bit too powerful. So we're going to see how that plays out, but it's a trend that you want to pay attention to. I think you're going to see something called the diffusion of power. That's the second big trend in the next 15 to 20 years, where developing countries in Asia are going to become more prominent world powers compared to North American and European nations. Now, I like China. I prefer India, but I like China. It doesn't knock China. It just means I prefer as an investor. China alone will probably have the largest economy, surpassing that of the United States in a few years, uh, before 2030 is the thought. In a tectonic shift, the health of the global economy increasingly will be linked to how well the developing world does. In a tectonic shift, the health of the global economy is increasingly going to be linked to how well the developing world does, more so than the traditional West. So you want to invest in some developing market indexes. In other words, having the most money or people won't necessarily keep a country powerful if others are more adept at staying connected to all the data and the resources. Next big major trend that I want to hit on is the demographic patterns. Now, a lot of this stuff you can find at census.org. If you want to do it yourself, I don't suggest that because I'm not talking about doing it yourself for two or three hours once a week. I'm talking about doing it yourself for 50 to 60 hours a week. But the demographic patterns is a combination that's being created of widespread aging, falling fertility, and urbanization, which will lead to a dramatically different world in 2030. With an expected 8.3 billion people, human civilization will be both older and much more focused on city life. Our infrastructure has to improve, but our level of innovation and output is going to slow down without younger workers, and that's going to be a bit of a problem. Aging countries are going to face an uphill battle in maintaining their living standards. Um, again, with the aging of America, one of the best things we have, whether you like it or not, are immigrants, both legal and illegal who come here and work and contribute to our economy and do jobs that help us be one of the greatest countries in the world. Um, because we're not making enough babies to fill those jobs. Um, it's entirely possible that within the next several decades, humanity will generate more urban construction than it has in the rest of history, in the next decade. Now, I look at that and I go, man, I've seen San Francisco change. I moved to the Bay Area over 15 years ago. And San Francisco is a quaint, big town. Now it's a stuffy, big town. The hometown that I chose to choose was literally a, a sleepy town that went to bed at 9 o'clock. And now they've got at least six <clears throat> major um, construction projects going on for single-family apartments. And it's turning into more of a city than a town. 
And finally, the big trend that I want you to pay attention to is growing demand for food, water, and energy. There's a water ETF. There's two. There's an international one and a domestic one. Google water ETF. You'll find it. A growing middle class. And when you do that, you'll see 15 stocks that you may want to research individually, or maybe you just go for the index. A growing middle class and gains and empowerment is going to lead the demand for food to rise by 35%, water by 40%, and energy by 50%. Wow. So that's growth. That's better than the 2 to 3% GDP growth we're getting here. Food's going to rise by 35%, water by 40%, and energy by 50%. Regions with extreme weather patterns like rain-soaked Singapore or muggy Mumbai are going to get more extreme due to the effects of climate change. Dry areas such as northern Africa and the U.S. Southwest will feel the effects diminished of diminished precipitation especially hard and become more desertified. We will still have enough resources to avoid energy scarcity by 2030. However, the remaining resources, including fracking or renewable forms like solar and wind, um, we've yet to see how much we're going to have them jump up their game. Catch Rob Black and Rob Black and Your Money live on the Bay Area Airwaves. Weekday mornings from 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW and streaming live on the KDOW radio app or KDOW.biz. And don't forget the weeknight replay at 7. I highly suggest every listener get or share a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and Barron's. They are one in the same. And start reading business headlines and start saying, why is this important? Some headlines that jump out to me today. And again, I don't think I'm always right. Trust me. I've just done this a long time. And uh, I could teach you a lot about investing. A lot about investing. So some of the headlines that I see today, for instance, include Amazon is boosting the prices of its monthly Prime membership. I'm like, first of all, no, not Prime. I have Prime. But wait, wait. I have the annual, not the monthly. But they're boosting their, their membership fee 20%. No, God! So the online retailer says its annual membership of $99 will not change. But its monthly is going to jump from $10.99 to $12.99. And for college students, it's going to jump from $5.49 to $6.49. Um, and that starts off soon. Now, this is a show that I could replay a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. It could be an evergreen, in large part because this is a lesson on pricing power. Maybe Amazon's deciding that they don't want to lose money on the person who jumps in at Christmas time, does it for a month or two, gets a lot of individual packages sent to them, turns off their monthly fee right after that. Basically, finding a, a workaround for fast delivery that's not super expensive. So that story jumped out to me, and it's like, hmm, share that. It's pricing power. It's also telling you that um, the company's getting focused on earnings, and that could be an important thing for a company that's been focused on revenues. It could be interesting on a positive. It could be interesting on a negative. Because when you look at Amazon, you don't go, historically, this should trade at 20 times earnings. Or the market trades at 15, and it's at 20, and in the last five years, it's traded between 12 and 22, and it's currently at 21 times earnings, the price of the company versus the earnings that it generates. Uh, you don't value Amazon like that. You would say that it's at the high end of its PE in that case, or a company that's historically had a PE of 12 to 20, and it's currently at 13, you'd say it's the low end, and that may create some value. <laughs> 
that's one way to start to look for stocks. You start comparing it against itself, and then you compare it against its peers with the price-to-sales ratio. How much is the company worth versus how many dollars of sales do they do? And different industries have different you know metrics to you, you key in on. Technology, for instance, uh, price-to-sales ratio of four. Um, wait, you can't say technology because software is four. Hardware, you'd probably want to go like two to three valuation. It's tricky. So, because you start looking at profit margins, you start looking at sales uh, cycles and how long they're going to last or not last. So, an analyst is out today and he's telling me something about the long term, in his opinion. There's a company called Square. I get my hair cut every five weeks, four weeks, five weeks. I don't have a lot of hair, so it's kind of silly, right? Uh, but also, I don't have a sexy woman who's willing to pull out the clippers and chop my hair up either. So I have to pay someone to do that. Payment company Square is, anagla- uh, is, is, is analogous to Amazon or Google in their early days, so says an analyst from Numura today. And Numura is not a big brokerage house. Numura is a big research house. They're calling it a buy. They think the climb to, uh, to fame, and wait, I, I never finished my thought. I need more coffee. But so the analyst is saying that Square, which the woman who cuts my hair, when I pay her, she pulls out a credit card reader and she takes my credit card, zaps it right in, says, when would you like to make an appointment, blah, blah, blah. What do you want to tip me? Blah, blah, blah. Here, move your finger and sign here, blah, blah, blah. And Square has a faster turnaround for small business merchants like herself. So it's attractive. So Nomura is saying they're calling it a buy, and they think it's very similar to Amazon or Google in the early days. They think Wall Street's valuing the company all wrong. So I'm fascinated because I know what Amazon and Google did in their early days. Nothing. They, they sat there and they moved up and down. And then they took off like a rocket. Boom, boom, boom. We're going to the moon. So Square's climb to fame is the result of its financial transaction technology, enabling small businesses to accept card payments through its software and hardware products. It's also developed what's called Square Cash, a means of sending and receiving money between individuals and businesses, very similar to PayPal's Venmo. In 10 years, Square is likely to be a very different company, helped by accelerating share gains from payment peers and relentless disruption of services like payroll and HR. Valuation should include mixed shift to large sellers, accelerating share gains, growing penetration of higher price transaction types like virtual terminals and e-commerce, as well as high margin services like Square Payment, uh, Square Capital, and payroll. Whoa. And then I'm thinking, like, who's going to buy them? PayPal could. Visa could. Apple? Sure, why not? Spin off what they don't like. Keep what they do. Um, so th- that's a pretty powerful read right there. Square is going to be a very different company helped by accelerating share gains from payment peers and relentless disruption of services like payroll and H- HR. And the analyst is very clear to say in 10 years. You know, he's saying, don't get instant gratification. This might be one to be added to your portfolio to look at, to maybe wait for a bad day in the market, maybe a bad report from the company. Because he believes that in 10 years. Now, this is where you start your research. You don't end your research on, hey, I read on the internet somebody said this. He's got a $64 price target representing 59% upside from the close. The highest target on Wall Street. He believes that Wall Street doesn't see the bright future for Square because they are using conventional valuation methodologies. He's using a discounted cash flow model to come up with his target. 
Square shares are up 173% in the last 12 months. Now, wait. He's calling for 70% upside from here after it's already uh, 60% upside from here after it's already up 173% in the last 12 months. What if he's breading his butter? That worries me a bit. What if he's buttering his bread? <laughs> breading his butter. What if he's making milk pudding? How I'm going to be a grown-up boy one day. He thinks the continues going. He thinks the company is going to continue to grow up market. He's learned that more complex sellers have often established systems that are tailored to their businesses, such as e-commerce websites, custom point of sale, or inventory software. He thinks it's an open platform. Developers can connect these systems with Square, and it doesn't hurt that their CEO is Jack Dorsey. So just being compared to Amazon or Google, like. I don't know what you and your loved one are going to do this weekend, but maybe you can take her out, have a nice dinner. She looks at you and she goes, you're kind of like an early Amazon or Google. Man, your heart will swell. Because you know that soon they go boom, boom, boom. They're going to the moon. Um, It's a big compliment. It doesn't mean anything. It's a start. It's not a finish. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. Want the podcast with music? Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black Show. Listen to Rob Black and Your Money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220 KDOW. Were you brave enough to pick up Twitter when it looked like they were going out of business? Did you hear me doing stories about the fall of Twitter and will they ever get average monthly users up or more engagement from their users that they have? Take a look at the stock and you'll go, man, I missed that one. So at one point in time, it was left for dead. It was internet roadkill on the information superhighway. It was not looking pretty. The social media company... I think we all knew that they weren't they weren't going to die. We thought they were going to be acquired, but that felt kind of like, you know, when and at what price? CEO Jack Dorsey's turnaround efforts is in its third year. Analysts have started upgrading the stock pretty consistently. It moved from a record low of $14 in May 2016 to mid-20s and higher. Taking a look at the analysts now, they're they're kind of loving it. You know that whole McDonald's ba da ba ba ba. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Did anyone read Prince Valiant as a comic as a kid? And if so, why? It's a good question, right? Are you with me against me? Um. So yeah, take a look at Twitter. It's you, did you have the courage? And sometimes it, that's what it comes down to. Like. I tend to recommend, I'll get an email every now and then, and it's someone who's brand new to investing, goes, what stock should I buy? I'm like, no, nah, you buy indexes till you have $100,000. You accumulate wealth, and then you, you then you start playing with it a little bit. Um, but in the mid-20s, you know, does it look attractive? Can it get another leg up? When you take a look at some of the stories that people are talking, you can see that they can, because recently Facebook made the decision to uh, change their news feed, to emphasize content generated by users, friends, and family, pulling back from posts created by brands, businesses, and news outlets, trying to cut down on the old fake news. Facebook's shift is probably a boost, ultimately, 
to Twitter's importance to media outlets and businesses. I use Twitter not to follow my friends. I use Facebook to follow my friends, to follow businesses and analysts and people that I like as far as opinions and generating uh, real content from the New York Times or something. Like, my my content is on Twitter. But I don't want to see, you know, my am at the gym, look at me working out pictures on Twitter. I'll post those on Facebook. And which, for the record, you will not see me shirtless on Facebook. Facebook's still a big old company, but publishers have to hedge their bets and, you know, start to tiptoe through the two lips to Twitter. A lot of optimism right now is being built into shares of Twitter. Maybe too much. They were known for their 140 character limit on messages, but they've uh, lengthened that. They're not about to topple Facebook. Um, but advertisers don't want to just play Facebook. They've got 330 million monthly active users, Twitter has. It's just a fraction of the digital advertising market compared with Facebook. And it's average of 2 billion monthly users. Can you imagine Facebook has 2 billion monthly users? I remember growing up where Monday after the Super Bowl, we'd all look at the, the ratings. The 95 million Americans. 100 million Americans watched the Super Bowl. Joe Montana had a fantastic day. The Buffalo Bills, not so much. So the Super Bowl was kind of like the, the King Daddy, the Mac Daddy of advertising. And now they've given that to Facebook. Trust me, the Super Bowl's still important, but I could see a day and age where NFL players aren't getting record salaries. And it'll be soon. Unless the NFL continues to do things like, we're going to put a football team in London. That's coming. How long until you get a football team in China? That's coming too. London first. It's funny because when you watch football and baseball and various sports now, you see a lot of empty seats in some of the underperforming teams. I do at least. So I think I've hit Twitter up enough. Thank you, Twitter. You can now go back to your seat. Uh, millennials. I love millennials, but I'm going to start talking more about Generation Z sooner rather than later. Millennials, though, are snubbing diamonds, and diamond pricing prices are falling. They're expected to fall 10% in 2018. Um, diamonds are slumping. And, you know, I don't know if you invest in diamonds, but you probably insure your diamonds, hopefully. They're little rocks that can disappear fast when you have various people come and go from your home. Prices, the precious gym may slump as much as 10% in 2018 as it loses its appeal with younger consumers and faces challenges from synthetic alternatives. I don't understand, and this is where I have a major flaw. I'm not wired correctly, and I know that. I don't understand why anyone in their right mind would not look at a cubic zirconium and a gift of $10,000 in cash to invest it however you want versus a $10,000 diamond. Diamonds are marketed on the idea that they will forever represent a pinnacle of luxury. I've created the ultimate diamond. It's the pink frost diamond for Valentine's Day this year. If you don't get passionate love from your spouse, you will get your money back. But you must buy the passionate frosted pink.
pink diamond today, only at K Jewelers. <laughs> it's the pinnacle of luxury and materialistic desire. It's a little rock that people can barely see. So good for the younger generation of millennials that they don't have the same allegiance to the same products as their parents and their grandparents. Polished diamonds uh, was one of the worst performing commodities in 2017 with the gym's reputation tarnished by fakes and stones mined in conflict zones. Yes, you can get this lovely diamond. And it comes from the South African mines. We send little children in with machetes to cut off other little children's arms to intimidate them so that they'll pick diamonds in the diamond mines, which sometimes collapse and kill them, too. What? I'm a millennial. I don't support that. I, I, I don't. There's no blood diamond. No, 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 no. Generation X is like, give me the diamond. Just, just put it in a bag and I'll just put it in a bag, brown paper bag. Just, I got to go. Millennials do the right thing. So, I don't know. What's the big alternative investment this year in commodities? It's coal and carbon credits. Chinese production cuts have reduced supplies, boosting metallurgical and thermal coal prices. Free cash flow yields at North American coal producers are still incredibly attractive. Can you invest in coal? Can you do that with your like head? Like, I'm going to go get coal. I'm going to get in fact, I'm just going to go buy a bag of charcoal and put it in my yard and make sure it doesn't get rained on. No, that doesn't quite work like that. But there's all sorts of things that you can invest in. Lithium, cobalt, copper, nickel, graphite. All of those play into the electric car boom. And it's just, I'm not a hard commodity kind of guy. Um... That's just me. I'll stand by that. I'm good with that. So that's out there. One area that I want to talk a little bit about are mortgage rates and Starbucks. This year's spring housing market is going to be more competitive than ever. For existing homes, there's 10% fewer homes for sale compared to a year ago. It's not a good day to be a fat real estate agent because you're going to be losing weight this year. You're not going to be walking around showing a lot of houses. There's going to be 10% fewer homes to walk around in. Mortgage rates, which sat near record lows for the bulk of 2017, are suddenly rising. There's still plenty of snow blanketing a wide swath of the nation. And inventory will pick up in March, April, May when that snow starts to melt. President's Day is considered the start of the busiest season for housing, with big builders touting holiday sales to kick it off. Over in the existing home market, there's nothing to shout about, though. Nothing to shout about. There's 10% fewer homes for sale this year versus last year in the hottest markets. Prices are appreciating fast. There's up to 40% fewer homes for sale in areas like New York, San Francisco. Low supply last year caused home prices, which were rising already, to accelerate. There's there's a, a good number of buyers. Let's look at new mortgage rates um, that have moved higher which sat near record lows. The average rate now sits at 30-year fixed is a quarter percentage point higher since the start of the year. It's around 4.25%. Expectations is that they're going to continue to move higher as the Federal Reserve continues to move interest rates, and the 10-year Treasury continues to reflect that. The market's starving for new homes. Aging millennials and young families may be able to find more affordable homes for sale this year, but you know they're going to be further out in the suburbs with more grueling commutes to urban job centers. 
newly built homes are awesome or expensive than comparable existing homes. So higher mortgage rates may make them less attractive, especially to buyers on the margins or those who are having more trouble qualifying for mortgage. Find me online at Rob Black Show. That's robblackshow.com. Don't forget, there's another hour of today's show to listen to. Find it now at kdow.biz or on the KDOW radio app. The ranking of the highest grossing concert tours in Billboard history. History. It's pretty unaltered year to over year. But last year, you saw two new entries, and they jumped high. Coldplay, who you're hearing right now, jumped to number three overall with a gross of $523 million from its Head Full of Dreams tour. After I had a run of basically a year and a half, I think they came to the Bay Area twice. <laughs> like, I think we'll do a little thing called the Super Bowl and get a lot of people eyeballing us, and then we'll go around the world and make a lot of money, pull out the rakes. Now you understand why the NFL wants the acts to pay them. A total of 5.4 million tickets were sold during a five-continent trek that launched at the end of March 2016. It hit stadiums worldwide. 114 sold-out performances in 83 venues, 13 of which topped $10 million in sales from multiple show runs. Not too shabby. Now, Coldplay's at seven albums. They may not be your cup of tea, but you got to have some respect for who jumped up to number four on that list. Guns N' Roses hit the all-time tour list at four. Did they break up like 20 years ago? <laughs> they had a $475 million overall gross from 123 headlining performances on its five-continent trek that's still ongoing. With the end of the band's 2017 touring schedule in November, more than 4.3 million tickets have been sold. Not in this lifetime. That was the name of their tour. Guns N' Roses also made festival appearances during both years of the tour, beginning with the headlining slot at Coachella in April 2016. Uh, Axel actually showed up, which is pretty darn crazy. Now, let's take a look at the tours that had the biggest box office history run. Cirque du Soleil's Mike Jackson from 2011-2014, right there at $360 million. The police come in at number nine, the reunion tour, pulled in $362 million. Vertigo by U2 was number eight, $389 million. Madonna, Sticky and Sweet, $408 million. ACDC, Black Ice, Fire, $441 million back in 2008. Roger Waters, The Wall Live, pulled in $459 million over three years. Guns N' Roses, I just talked about, $475. Coldplay, $523 million. The top grossing tours of all time, Rolling Stones, A Bigger Bang, 2005 to 2007, $558 million. And you too, the 360 tour, pulled in the number one spot with $736 million from 2009 to 2011. Not too shabby. Microsoft president Brad Smith has talked a, a lot about the future in a new book. It's called The Future Computed. I just finished it. It's fantastic. Um, and it talks about the future and artificial intelligence and our personal digital assistants and how they're going to be integrated into our life. Kind of as an alter ego. It says 20 years from now, your digital assistant goes through your calendar and talks to your other electronic devices to plan your day while you sleep. It may tell your car, hey, you better go get gas because he's running late. 
with an eye on your sleep cycle that wakes you up at a time, which is you're going to feel the most refreshed within a window of time you've previously approved. So 20 years from now, you're going to have a digital assistant that looks at your sleep cycle while you're sleeping. It's going to jump into your calendar and go, oh, no, he forgot an appointment. He's oversleeping. Wake him up. As you get ready, your assistant reads you the news, reports, social media activity, that it's determined to be the most of interest to you. Apple is said to be developing this technology right now for its HomePod, which is going to be a big speaker. So, and it's going to say, Siri, read me the news. So it's going to read news, report, social media activity. That's the most important to you. I would love that because I'm pretty routine, right? A digital assistant can figure me out. There's very few days where I'm like, hey, I want to know about the Warriors. I want to know about the Giants. I want to know about the Sharks. I, do, I, I don't want to know about the Capitals. I don't want to know about the uh, Mavericks. I rarely stray. It'll update you on your weather, your upcoming meetings, and people you see that day and suggest the best time to leave the house based on traffic. We're starting to see some of that there. When I pull out my phone, I get ready to get in my car. It knows that I'm either going to San Francisco or Fremont or the gym. Those are the only places I go. Sometimes I go home. Your first meeting of the day will be with an international team and held remotely before you leave the office. You put on a pair of mixed reality glasses. You greet your colleagues. You appear before them in a virtual boardroom. You all put in an earpiece so that the, each side's language is automatically translated for the other without lag. We're already starting to see some of that. Google came out with some earpieces last year that have gotten mixed reviews, but mostly pretty good. Your sister's coming into town. It books a restaurant for you before you stop and think about it. You got Valentine's Day on the calendar? You forgot? Oh, it's got you covered. It'll summarize discussions for you. You know, the board meeting one, I don't know if I'll ever have international contacts. I Seriously, I want less than more right now. I'd rather have a lake than a flight to China. But it's also something that it's, it's – Chad and I run a, a meeting with the team up in Oregon, Washington, and tied together to California. And he uses um, GoToMeeting. And I'm like, that doesn't work really well because when you're all in one room and you cackle and tell a joke, none of us can hear or see what's funny. And now none of us can hear the point. While you work on your presentation, your assistant offers supplementary information about the topic you're focused on. It's a pretty good book. I highly recommend. Um, Harry Shum, S-H-U-M, S-H-U-M. Um, and I think you'll get a lot of, of read pleasure at the future computed. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Find me at robblackshow.com.